0: speaker this evening, Dr. Robert Ulanowitz, is a man of eclectic interests. He is a professor of theoretical ecology at the University of Maryland's Chesapeake Biological Laboratory. Dr. Ulanowitz came to the study of ecology with a PhD in chemical engineering. If I were to read a list of his publications, I would keep us here far past the hour. Suffice it to say that in addition to articles And studies for UNESCO and other um, government and multinational agencies. He is the author or editor of a number of books including Ecology, the Ascendant Perspective, an optimistic manifesto for life scientists. He is also a leader in the application of quantitative methods to the study of food webs in aquatic ecosystems. He continues to enrich our understanding of the very real problems of scale and complexity one finds in ecological investigations. <coughs> Finally, he has formulated what he calls an ecological metaphysic and probed the limitations of the Newtonian worldview in understanding the dynamics of nature. Without further ado, let us welcome Professor Ulanowitz, who will speak on naturalism and or divine imminent action. Professor Ulanowitz.
1: Thank you, Professor Osborne, for the very generous introduction. And it's good to be back in Santa Barbara. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight, in the spirit of the late Gregory Bateson, I'm going to try to convince you that much is radically, terribly wrong with the way science tries to look at life, and to offer you a naturalistic alternative. And to do so within 25 minutes requires some very compact and dense arguments. And so I beg your patience. In the ongoing cultural warfare between naturalism and creationism, much is said, too often with malicious intent, about the facts and theories surrounding evolution. It is rare that any underlying metaphysics are discussed, yet there lie the fears and suspicions that drive the controversy. For example, Many metaphysical naturalists are convinced that the body of evidence supporting evolution confirms their basic assumptions regarding the nature of reality. They cannot conceive of evolution resting upon any other metaphysic. On the other side, some theists are concerned about how evolution is taught in schools not because they contest the phenomenology of evolution, but because they worry that these facts will be used as a Trojan horse to conceal and foist rigid materialism upon students. Such are the fears of many who attempted to introduce intelligent design into the curricula of public education. Now, if we're to entertain any hope of diffusing this noisy clash, we had best pay at least some attention to the tacit assumptions that fuel it. While books on the scientific method are legion, works that articulate the core scientific assumptions about reality are surprisingly rare. It appears a contemporary consensus on the fundamentals is lacking. One must go back to the early 19th century, before one encounters near-unanimity about the nature of reality. Depew and Weber, in their tome, Darwinism Evolving, enumerate those assumptions. One, Newtonian systems are causally closed. That is, only mechanical and material causes are legitimate. Other forms of action are proscribed, especially any reference to Aristotle's final or top-down causality. Two, Newtonian systems are atomistic. They are strongly decomposable into stable least units, which can be built up and taken apart again. Atomism, combined with closure, gives rise to the notion of reductionism, whereby only those agencies at the smallest scales are of any importance. And thus it is that Carl Sagan, In summarizing his wonderful television show on biological evolution, saw no inconsistency whatsoever in his declaration, these are some of the things that molecules do. Three, Newtonian laws are reversible. Laws governing behavior work the same in both temporal directions. And this is a consequence of the symmetry of time in all Newtonian laws. Four, Newtonian laws are deterministic. Given precise initial conditions, the future and past states of a system can be specified with arbitrary precision. Finally, five, physical laws are universal. They apply everywhere, at all times, and all scales. Now, the key adverb here is everywhere, because in combination with determinism, universality says that nothing occurs except that it be elicited by a fundamental physical law. Philip Hefner once wistfully expressed his doubts about miracles by saying that God just doesn't have enough wiggle room to act in the world. Stephen Hawking, in his A Brief History of Time, asserted that there is nothing left for a creator to do. Of course, virtually no one today believes fully in the validity of all five tenets. Very soon after Laplace had exalted in the absolute power of Newtonian laws, Sadi Carnot initiated the science of thermodynamics with his demonstration of the irreversible nature of physical processes. Later, Charles Darwin would introduce history, irreversibility, and indeterminism into the scientific narrative. Perhaps the final blows to the ascendancy of Newtonianism were made at the beginning of the 20th century, when relativity and quantum theories surfaced to throw universality and determinism gravely into doubt. After such assault, the fabric of classical assumptions lies in tatters. Still, almost every scientist clings to at least one or more of its dangling threads, Now, such is hardly surprising, but what seems to me passing strange is how some individuals in fields where the mechanical worldview would appear least applicable cling desperately to aspects of the metaphysic. Thus it is that closure is strictly enforced in the Neo-Darwinian scenario of evolution. Dawkins and Dennett, for example, are scrupulous in making reference to only material and mechanical causes. Atomism or reductionism continues to dominate biology, witness the prevalence of molecular biology today. A surprising fraction of scientists today continues to deny the reality of chance in the world, contending instead that probability simply papers over an underlying determinacy. As the Newtonian metaphysic has waned, several philosophers have moved against some of its more entrenched aspects. Thus, Charles Saunders Peirce, Alfred North Whitehead, Karl Popper, and Robert Rosen have all attributed some form of causal openness to nature. Perhaps none, however, has argued with as much rigor and relevance as Walter Elsasser, an erstwhile physicist who set himself to developing a consistent logic for biological systems. In particular, Elsasser has labeled as patently illogical the widespread attempts to apply the notion of law, as used in physics, to biological phenomena. He further demonstrated that probability theory could not be applied universally to chance phenomena. Now, conventional treatments of chance events invariably make the tacit assumption that they are simple, generic, and repeatable. Elsasser, however, demonstrated that the overwhelming majority of stochastic events in biology are totally unique, never again to be repeated. Now, such an assertion sounds absurd at first, given the enormity and age of our universe, but it is surprisingly easy to defend. Elsasser did so by defining the concept of an enormous number. An enormous number of possible possibilities is one so large that it must be excluded from physical consideration, simply because it greatly exceeds the number of physical events that possibly could have occurred since the Big Bang. as an estimate of the latter, Elsasser multiplied the number the estimated number of fundamental particles in the entire known universe by the number of nanoseconds, that is, billionths of a second, that have transpired since the Big Bang. Any number of possibilities much larger than this product simply transcends physical reality. Now, those those of you familiar with combinatorics will immediately recognize that it doesn't take very many distinct elements or processes before the number of possible configurations among them becomes enormous. One doesn't require billions of entities to pose a number of combinations that exceed Elsasser's limits. A system with merely 80 or so identifiable components will suffice. Any event randomly comprised of more than 80 separate elements is almost certain, never to have occurred earlier in the history of the universe. It follows then that in ecosystems comprised of hundreds or thousands of distinguishable organisms, one must reckon not just with the occasional unique event, but with legions of them. Unique singular events are occurring all the time, everywhere. In the face of this situation, determinism as a universal characteristic of nature becomes an absurdity. A necessary condition for applying probability theory to chance events is that those events occur at least several times so that a legitimate frequency can be estimated. Singular events, however, occur only once, never to be repeated. Probabilities cannot be assigned to them. Furthermore. I lay particular stress on the fact that those singular events constitute actual holes or gaps in the causal fabric. Akin to Heisenberg uncertainties, they are a necessary part of nature, not just some epistemic lacuna that are wanting theoretical elaboration. Now, at this point, Many of you are probably objecting that lots of biological phenomena patently do recur with significant regularity. What principles then might account for such regularities? Elsasser would reply that whatever such principles might apply, they cannot be equivalent to physical laws. For lawful behavior in physics requires that change takes place that, that changes take place among collections of objects called homogeneous sets. All members of a homogeneous set are indistinguishable. For example, all hydrogen atoms must be treated as equivalent. Biology, however, deals almost exclusively with heterogeneous groupings. Elsasser argues that even individuals in collections of bacteria can be distinguished one from another. Biologist Richard Lowenton has independently concluded that no proper laws exist in biology. So if no laws are possible, then what's going on? Well, to cut to the chase, regularities are being created and maintained by processes. And the outcomes of a process are indeterminate. A useful example of a simple artificial process is Polya's urn. This exercise begins with a collection of red and blue balls and an urn containing one red ball and one blue ball. The urn is shaken, and a ball is blindly drawn from it. If that ball is the blue one, a blue ball from the collection is added to it, and both are returned to the urn. The urn is shaken, and another draw is made. If a ball drawn is red, then another red ball is taken, and both are replaced into the urn. Now, first question arises as to whether a long sequence of such draws and additions would cause the ratio of red to blue balls to converge to a limit. And it's rather easy to demonstrate that after many draws, the ratio does converge to some constant, say Uh, 0.39671352. A second question asks, what would happen if the urn were emptied and the starting configuration recreated? Would the subsequent series of draws converge to the same limit as the first? Here again, it is easy to demonstrate that it will not. The second time, it might converge to uh, 0.8127465, etc. One soon discovers that the ratio of balls is progressively constrained by the particular series of draws that have already occurred. It eventually becomes clear that the limiting ratio for any long sequence of draws and replacements can be any fraction between 0 and 1. Before proceeding to natural processes, it behooves us to note three features of the Polya process. It involves chance, it involves self-reference, and the history of draws is crucial to any particular series. The late Gregory Bateson noted is how regularity could be imparted to nature via feedbacks. He said that the outcome of random noise acting upon a feedback circuit is generally non-random. I now draw your attention to one particular form of feedback autocatalysis. By autocatalysis is meant here any instance of a positive feedback loop wherein the direct effect of every link on its downstream neighbor is positive. Without loss of generality, let us focus our attention on the serial circular conjunction of three processes A, B, and C shown on the screen. Any increase in A has a likelihood to induce a corresponding increase in B which in turn could elicit an increase in C and whence back to A. A didactic example of autocatalysis in ecology is the community that forms around the aquatic macrophyte utricularity, or some of you may know, utricularia, or some of you might know it as bladder words. All members of the genus utricularia are carnivorous plants. Scattered along its feather-like stems and leaves are small bladders called utricles, each utricle has a few hair-like triggers at its terminal end which, when touched by a feeding zooplankter, opens the end of the bladder and the animal is sucked into the utricle by a negative osmotic pressure maintained inside the bladder. In nature, the surface of utricularia plants is always host to a film of slimy algal growth known as periphyte. This periphyton serves, in turn, as food for any number of species of small zooplankton, and the autocatalytic cycle is closed when the utricularia captures and absorbs many of the zooplankton. Now, in chemistry, where reactions are simple and fixed, autocatalysis is simply another mechanism. As soon as one or more participant is able to undergo small incremental alterations in response to stochastic events, however, the picture changes dramatically, and a number of decidedly non-mechanical behaviors can arise. Time permits me to discuss but a few. Of primary importance, autocatalysis is capable of exerting selection pressure upon its ever-changing malleable constituents. Consider, for example, a small spontaneous change in process B. If that change either makes B more sensitive to A or a better catalyst of C, then the transition will receive enhanced stimulus from A. Conversely, if the change in B either makes it less sensitive to the effects of A or a weaker catalyst of C, then that perturbation will likely receive diminished support from A. That is to say that there is a preferred direction inherent in autocatalysis, that of increasing autocatalytic participation. Such asymmetric direction violates the assumption of reversibility. Furthermore, as components increasingly engage in autocatalysis or mutually adapt within the cycle, they may lose the capability of acting on their own. So should they be separated from the cycle and survive, they would behave radically differently from how they did as part of the autocatalytic scheme. That is, the full cycle manifests an organic nature that belies the assumption of atomism. One notes in particular that any change in B is likely to involve a change in the amounts of material and energy that are required to sustain process B. As a corollary to selection pressure, we immediately recognize the tendency to reward and support any changes that serve to bring ever more resources into being. Now, because this circumstance pertains to any and all members of the feedback loop, any autocatalytic cycle becomes the epicenter of a centripetal pattern of flows towards which as many resources as possible will converge. This phenomena has been dubbed chemical imperialism by philosopher Bertrand Russell, who declared it to be the drive behind all of evolution. However, that impulse remains a tacit mystery under the neo-Darwinian scenario. Please note how autocatalytic selection pressure is exerted in top-down fashion. An agency proper to the macroscopic ensemble that actively influences its constituent elements. This mode of action violates causal closure, which allows only mechanical actions at smaller levels to ramify up the hierarchy of scales. Finally, It is worthwhile to note how autocatalytic selection sometimes acts to stabilize, compartmentalize, and regularize behaviors across the hierarchy of scales. Unlike the rigidity of Newtonian universality, an event or behavior anywhere will rarely propagate up and down the hierarchy without attenuation. For example, the consequences of noise at one level are usually mitigated by autocatalytic selection at higher levels and by energetic calling at lower levels. The action of process on nature induces it to take on habits and exhibit regularities. But the effects of such are limited in time and space, so that the universality of Newtonian laws is replaced by a granularity in the real biological world. Now, in case you haven't been keeping count with me, I note how the action of singular chance upon autocatalytic causal loops has been shown to violate all five of the Newtonian postulates. To put it bluntly, the remnants of the Newtonian metaphysic are wholly inappropriate to the description of living dynamics. It is necessary to identify an entirely new but wholly naturalistic metaphysic, an ecological metaphysic, if you will. Again, unfortunately, time does not permit me to elaborate how I arrived at such a set of fundamental assumptions. Suffice it here to note that they are related to the three aspects of the process that I highlighted highlighted above, namely, radical contingency. Nature, in its complexity, is rife with singular events. Most do not upset the prevailing regularities, but a very, very few occasionally carry a system into wholly different modes of emergent behavior. And some of us heard all about emergentism this afternoon. Self-influence, a process in nature via its interaction with other natural processes can influence itself. History, the effects of self-influence are usually constrained by the history of past such changes as recorded in the configurations of living matter. Such configurations could be static material forms, like DNA, or might exist as the topologies of interacting processes. Upon these three postulates, it is possible to build, in logico-deductive fashion, most of the key key organic behaviors exhibited by ensemble living systems, such as ecosystems, immune systems, social and economic systems, etc., etc. I wish to stress emphatically the fact that these three postulates lie wholly within the natural realm. There is nothing whatsoever transcendental or supernatural about them. They afford a seamless and, I believe, far more coherent description of the life process than can be achieved using the conventional metaphysics. Nevertheless, I anticipate their vehement rejection by any number of of philosophers of science simply because they do not sustain an unnecessarily rigid materialistic ideology. As physicist Leonard Susskind recently remarked, from a political, cultural point of view, it's not that these arguments are religious, but that they denude us from our historical strength in opposing religion one must bear in mind that the Newtonian consensus precipitated during an era of overweening clericalism. Out of fear, some formulators were keen to separate their neoscientific activities from the supernatural, lest they risk excommunication or possibly even extermination. Others aggressively sought to undermine the very authority of the clerics. And whatever that history, These circumstances do not prevail in contemporary Western society. And we are free to strike out in novel directions in a bold new world. This new world is one replete with openness. In Hefner's terms, it is rich in wiggle room. In my opinion, anyone who cannot accept such openness will never achieve a deep understanding of evolution, for it is precisely the wiggle room that makes our world so incredibly fecund. I would also caution those who use the adjective blind in reference to all chance. While simple chance events indeed may be blind, complex chance almost always engender some local directionality. Now, the metaphysical naturalist is free to insist that such directionality be considered entirely a causal. There is nothing to prevent the theist, however, from the belief that other agency might lie behind some of those events. The very nature of complex chance assures us that an epistemological veil precludes us from ever putting these two opposing assumptions to the test. The issue of imminent divine action is only one of those enduring conflicts between science and religion to either diminish or disappear under the ecological metaphysic. As a corollary, for example, intercessory prayer is no longer perforce absurd. That coherent thought is separated by several functional layers from synaptic interactions lends the necessary degree of freedom for an individual to exercise will. The origin of life no longer need appear incomprehensible from dead material, suddenly living things. And even theodicy, although remaining a formidable challenge to belief, loses some of its absolute character. The ensuing good news is that in the scheme of matters evolving, a divinity would be free to act. Humans would be free to love. And scientists, at least those who desire to do so, would be free to believe. I thank you for your kind attention.
0: Our next speaker uh, is Dr. Anche Jacqueline. Um, she takes us from the study of ecology uh, to the cognitive sciences and neuroscience. Dr. Jacqueline studied in Germany and Sweden. And won her doctorate in theology at the University of Lund. She also worked as a pastor for several years uh, in Europe and is now Professor of Systematic Theology, Religion, and Science at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago, where she simultaneously directs the Zygon Center for Religion and Science. The center clearly the most active and and longest running, I think, of centers of science and religion in America, publishes the journal Zygon, which is the flagship journal of science and religion studies. Our next speaker, then, has published several articles uh, and studies, and a book, which is now available in English, uh, came out last year. It's entitled Time and Eternity, the Question of Time in Church, Science, and Society. Professor Jacqueline has diverse intellectual interests, ranging from technology and spiritualism to secularization to the concept of emergence in science and theology and even cyber spirituality. Tonight, she points us toward a day in the future, I hope, when perhaps we will hear less about intelligent design and creationism and vastly more about the mind and the cognitive sciences. After her address we'll entertain questions, we'll invite up our experts here to the table, and we'll entertain questions of both speakers. The title of her talk tonight is Cognitive Sciences Considered or What About Life Beyond the Evolution, Creationism, Intelligent Design Debate? Professor Jacqueline.
2: What is beyond the evolution, creationism, intelligent design debate, and how can we prepare for what is ahead? The nature of this question makes all answers tentative without diminishing the importance of the task, however. By carefully considering the cognitive sciences today, we may be able to avoid some bad mistakes and unnecessary pain tomorrow. There are lessons to be learned from the debates on evolution. So what about the cognitive sciences? In these days, we hear about advances in the cognitive sciences, including cognitive science of religion. These sciences arose in a specific context and a particular historical situation. In part, they are a reaction against behaviorism, Where behaviorism refused to deal with inner states, cognitive science made mental states its subject of research. In other words, cognitive science examines brain minds with brain minds. If anything implies epistemological circularity, this scientific venture certainly does. More than in other sciences, the situation demonstrates the impossibility of strict objectivity and the necessity of hermeneutics, that is, the reflection on the art of interpretation and understanding, the significance of which I have discussed elsewhere and won't go into tonight. The cognitive sciences are a conglomerate of different branches of science, psychology, philosophy, anthropology, computer science, artificial intelligence, linguistics, neuroscience, education, and ethology. Thus, they bear witness to a general development in the intellectual landscape, namely the movement toward interdisciplinarity. There is reason to believe that certain advances in the cognitive sciences will have considerable mass medial impact. The more controversial, the more attractive. The electric stimulation of certain parts of the brain was presented as the discovery of the God-spot in the brain. You may remember that. Books popularized by Cognitive scientists have become bestsellers such as Phantoms in the Brain and Why God Won't Go Away. Dean Hamer, who became famous with the gay gene a couple of years ago, made it onto the front page of Time Magazine in October 2004 with the God gene. In a Newsweek article, Steven Pinker, reflected on the intricate relationship between the mind and the brain and how difficult it is for most of us to realize that we are our brain. Quote, yes, says Pinker, people acknowledge that the brain is involved in mental life, but they still think of it as a pocket PC for the soul, managing information at the behest of the ghostly user, end of quote. We know, of course, that catchwords such as God spot and God gene do not provide a fair representation of current research. Yet, we should not underestimate their suggestive and ideological dimensions. The God gene is a concept that has the potential to stick with people and to start living its own life in their heads. Like the popularization of the theory of evolution could go astray in the form of Darwin says that we are nothing but apes, a popularized presentation of neuroscience could go astray as God is nothing but a figment of the brain. From there, it would be only a small step to the conclusion that science takes God away and religion, and therefore should be combated with true religion, thus promoting literalism and religious fundamentalism. While the nothing but a figment of the brain rhetoric may push religious people into ill-thought-through apologetics. Non-religious or anti-religious people may be tempted to an equally ill-thought-through propaganda. When Michael Pershinger's experiments with magnetic helmets uh, causing religious experiences first became widely known, a Swedish microbiologist sparked a fierce debate in his country. His argument was that neuroscience is finally liberating humankind from the scourge of religion and superstition. Religion is disgusting, so he argues, because it makes people kill each other in the name of a god who is nothing but a figment of the brain. Religion is loathsome, he goes on, because it makes people suffer unnecessarily. Epileptics, for example, have been kept from receiving proper medical treatment because the religious experiences that may accompany their seizures made them blessed in the eyes of misguided believers who want to keep them in this allegedly holy state, but in fact, a pathological state. Hence, critics of religion may see in this kind of research the long-awaited salvation from religion by science. So these two examples of bad apologetics on the one side and bad propaganda on the other beg the question, how do we deal with this in more well-informed ways? I will here point to four potentially problematic issues associated with the reception of the cognitive science of religion and then suggest some strategies that I think will be helpful. So here are the problems. First, a general confusion among believers that may lead to animosity towards science and technology out of fear. It will bolster the mistaken perception of eternal conflict between religion and science. Two, a reductionist perception that cognitive science says that all religion is nothing but neurons firing, which will boost atheistic critique of religion and increase insecurity among believers. Three, a deterministic stance. Religion is fully genetically determined either you are religious or you're not, there is not much that can be done about it, which plays into the hands of a fatalistic understanding of religious engagement. And four, a sense of disillusion. The cognitive sciences take away the very last vestige of religious faith secularized people may have left, namely the believe in an immortal soul. Now to four possible responses to these problematic issues. First, the problem, again, a general confusion among believers that may lead to animosity towards science and technology out of fear. It will bolster the mistaken perception of eternal conflict between religion and science. The perception of science as a threat is often grounded in a lack of knowledge. Therefore I think that an increase of both scientific and religious literacy, and really both of these, both scientific and religious literacy, is the most powerful tool to counteract mistaken notions of conflict between science and religion. By no means Is cognitive science of religion simply the enemy of true religion? After all, it conveys the message that it is perfectly natural to be religious. You are not weird if you have religious experiences. Thus, anthropological models that describe humans as homo religiosus, as religious beings, would be reaffirmed. Humans have by nature a sense of sacred reality and a desire to relate to it. This affirmation seems like a good starting point for dealing with the second issue, the implied reductionism. Again, the problem, a reductionist perception that cognitive science says that all religion is nothing but neurons firing, which will boost atheistic critique of religion and increase insecurity among believers. The fear of reductionism in cognitive science needs to be taken seriously by both scientists and practitioners of religion. The concern that the cognitive science of religion may explain away what is dearest and holiest to us, our free will and our religion, seems real. Book titles like Consciousness Explained, How Religion Works, and Religion Explained keep kindling such apprehensions. Yet there is something deeply anachronistic about these book titles. They sound as if it were still possible to write the universal encyclopedia of knowledge. Nonetheless, a gut reaction which media will feel tempted to capitalize on, may very well be that the cognitive sciences are trying to say that religious experience is just a brain phenomenon without any reference to a transcendental reality. Now we need to understand that the research we are talking about here is indeed very different from traditional research on religion that sort of counts participants in religious rights or does surveys on opinions related to religious commitment. This new kind of research touches the inner core of religion, religious experience, spirituality. So the question is, can believers tolerate scientists' attempt to sort of dissect the spiritual centers. Can the findings of this type of research be integrated in ways that serve spirituality instead of discrediting it? I think they can, in similar ways as the scientific exploration of human sexuality does not question the authenticity and the reality of our erotic experiences. Theologians are often concerned about methodological reductionism in science. Can scientists really do justice to the complexity of religion? What do scientists measure when they research religion? What are their definitions of religion and of spirituality? The problem is that scientists need an operative definition of religion. This often leads them to choosing just one definition of religion, so that their entire understanding of what religion is hinges on that single definition. For example, for Newberg and D'Aquili, religion is a form of mysticism, which they call the experience of absolute unitary being. For others, religion is epitomized in the supernatural, or more precisely, in supernatural agency. Others, again, focus on ritual, understood in terms of an actor-patient model. A still different approach focuses on the social dimensions and ethics of religion theologians tend to complain about this one dimensionality of operative definitions. Sure, religion is about ritual, it is about the transcendent, it is about social relations and ethics, it is about experience, mystical and mundane, but it can hardly be reduced to any single one of these dimensions. That is why it would be useful if cognitive scientists and experts on religion, like theologians, really work together in creating and implementing research projects in this area. Such cooperation will be essential in counteracting potential alienation between cognitive scientists dealing with religion on the one hand, and theologians and religionists on the other. Ideally, Such mutual engagement will also convey the message that people of faith have little, if nothing, to fear from the cognitive science of religion. Come to the third problem. A deterministic stance. Religion is fully genetically determined. Either you are religious or you are not. There's not much that can be done about it which plays into the hands of a fatalistic understanding of religious engagement. What could be done about that? The resignation associated with genetic determinism can be alleviated by a comprehension of the complexity of the brain. There is in fact reason for scientifically justified awe the human brain is the most complex thing we know. Understanding the complexity of the brain means that in regard to religion, the question is not as simple as either having religion or not having it. The self and consciousness appear to be emergent properties of a very complex systems dynamics, which suggests that the process of religious maturation also is a highly complex process. It's not either or, but it's a complex process of maturation. With this as a starting point, I believe that the deterministic stance is not so much a threat than a splendid opportunity to rethink some issues. First of all, looking at evolutionary approaches and trying to give a naturalistic account does not necessarily rule out a theistic understanding of reality. We have enough experience from discussions about evolution and creation to make this point. It is perfectly possible to argue for different interpretations of the same data, where Richard Dawkins claims that what we observe leads us to conclude that the universe quote, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, unquote. Theologian John Hart argues that exactly the same data lead us to conclude that the universe we observe after Darwin has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom all encompassing, humble, self giving, promising love. Naturalistic concepts can be seen as exclusive of the- theistic or religious understandings as Dawkins and E.O. Wilson do, for example but that is by no means a necessary conclusion. These claims can also be neutral toward religious interpretations or even include them. The apprehension that as soon as something is described in biological terms, it cannot have any deeper religious or theological significance is of course a misapprehension. Biological explanations can be as complex, impressive, and sublime as philosophical or theological explanations can be. The intensity or beauty of an emotion is not diminished if we know that it is physically embodied in certain patterns of neuron activity or that strive for survival, brain structures, and socialization play a decisive role in its genealogy. The same may very well apply to free will and altruism. A precipitate rejection of naturalistic concepts denies both their heuristic value and their role as useful working hypotheses. And actually there are good examples in theology of having sort of naturalistic working hypothesis. The well-known theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer did theology et si Deus non daretur, as if God were not a given, and that worked too. This said, it is exciting to see how the cognitive sciences bring mind, body, and biology together in a way that we have not dreamt of since Descartes. In the wake of Cartesian philosophy, we have been overly used to a mind-body dualism based on the distinction between res cogitans and res extensa. This, in turn, fed beautifully into the separation of nature and culture. Now, on the contrary, boundaries and dualisms between minds and bodies as well as between nature and culture, and nature and technology become more fluid. This paves the way for an epistemology that transcends or dissolves the mind-body, culture-nature, reason-passion dualisms embedded in Cartesian rationality. This should make clear that what is at stake with the cognitive sciences is neither to prove or disprove the existence of God. The goal of religion and science dialogue is not to bring religion within the limits of reason alone. Nonetheless, the cognitive sciences may be able to increase quite significantly our understanding of possible conditions for the emergence of religion and of religious experience. We come to the fourth problem. A sense of disillusion. The cognitive sciences take away the very last vestige of religious faith secularized people may have left, namely the belief in an immortal soul the loss of the immortal soul. It still happens that Paul's use the question do you believe in an immortal soul as a marker of religious belief? Yet this very question is a distortion of much religion and certainly of Christian theology. In my view, Both science and theology suggest that we distinguish between a metaphorical and an ontological understanding of the soul. Ontological understanding would imply a clear distinction between two entities, a body and a soul. This is inadequate for both scientific and theological reasons. Theologically, and I limit myself to Christian theology here, It is incompatible with both the Hebrew and the Greek Bible. Especially Pauline theology, as it is presented in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, contradicts a concept of the immortal soul. Harvard Bible scholar Christa Stendhal has brought the objection nicely to the point by stating that immortality of the soul is a concept that is far too much and simultaneously far too little. Far too much because it arrogantly glorifies the human being with individual immortality and claims to know much more than is useful. It's far too little because it it is far too egoistic, far too concerned with one's own self, one's own family, or one's own race, thereby forgetting that the New Testament deals with something far greater than the concern about individual identity. It deals with the advent of the reign of God in all creation. And that notion must not be sacrificed on the altar of human self-centeredness. The body-soul dualism has also to be repudiated on scientific grounds because we have learned to understand that the soul is a physiologically embodied property of human nature and therefore not an entity with distinctive existence, awareness, and agency. This means that the soul is not a separable part of a person, but rather a person's emergent property and capacity for personal relatedness. We have learned to mistrust dualisms that build on absolute differences and antithesis, such as freedom versus determinism, human versus all other animals. Thinking in terms of continuum and degrees is much more in line with findings in various sciences. For all these reasons, a metaphorical understanding of the soul seems to be much more adequate. It is sort of comparable to how we use the word heart. Well aware that it is a muscle that pumps blood, we still find phrases like, my heart brims with joy, deeply meaningful. Similarly, we can be aware of the fact that there is no empirically identifiable entity called soul that can be distinguished from the brain, mind, and still talk about the soul as if it were an independent entity. By using that kind of language, we want to ensure that persons are not reduced to their biological functions. Talking about body and soul or body and spirit thus implies a duality of aspects rather than a duality of substances. This shift in our conceptual framework is a gift at a time when environmental challenges are among the most serious challenges we are facing on planet Earth. Non-dualist concepts of soul are ecological in a far deeper sense than those which they have replaced. I come to my conclusion. The question of what it means to be human will continue to bother us even when we have sorted out Darwin forever. There is a life beyond the evolution, creationism, intelligent design debate, and it will not be a boring life because there are new, exciting perspectives, a major one of them being the progress of the cognitive sciences and their sub-disciplines. From the point of view of science and religion does dialogue, Findings in the cognitive sciences can be received in different ways. As an attack on religion, or as one way to a deeper understanding of religion and religious experience. I have tried to argue that there is much reason to go for the latter option, namely A deeper understanding of what it means to be a spiritual being and to have spiritual experiences. Unfortunately there is nothing that guarantees such a positive development though. We might face yet another round of unfortunate religion versus science battles unless both scientists and religionists meet their challenges. For scientists, it is the challenge of dealing wisely with all kinds of reductionisms inherent in scientific research. For religionists, it is the challenge to show that religion can expand the mind and do so in secularly relevant ways, rather than always narrowing it as secularists routinely fear. And unfortunately, all too often have a reason to fear because all too often people of faith have chosen to close their minds. It is my hope, however, that our world will benefit from open-minded, mutual and constructive interaction between science and religion and whether that happens is probably up to you. Thank you.